Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host, welcoming you to the November 19, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we're going to work the social justice theme rather vigorously. The first guest will be Stephanie Hammerwold, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Pacific Reentry Career Services, a local nonprofit that helps formerly incarcerated women find and maintain employment following release. In the process, we'll learn all about California's two-year-old law, the Fair Chance Hiring Law. In the second segment, Professor Monica Ramirez Amadani, visiting clinical professor of law at UCI and civil rights advocate, litigator, and policy advisor, will tell us where we are after last week's opening arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court on the Trump administration's efforts to end deferred action for childhood arrivals, or DACA, as you may have heard it. UCI Law School student Verdiana Chabola is one of the plaintiffs. Well, we'll be right back after a station break with my first guest, Stephanie Hemmerle. Stay tuned. Don't go away. Thank you for staying tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest is Stephanie Hammerwold, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Pacific Reentry Career Services. Stephanie has worked in human resources for over 15 years. Prior to her career in human resources, she worked at a domestic violence shelter where she ran an art and writing workshop for residents. She later ran similar workshops for women in the Santa Cruz County Jail as part of a volunteer program that brought art and writing to incarcerated women. Her discussions with women in those workshops are what eventually led her to ban the box at one of her previous employers. We'll talk about what this ban the box is all about in the interview. Realizing the value of human resource professionals working to change hiring practices, Stephanie eventually founded Pacific Reentry Career Services with Tim Pershing as a way to support formerly incarcerated job seekers and also educate other HR professionals and employers on the value of considering this population for work. Get to that too. Pacific Reentry Career Services is an all volunteer organization that has a strong emphasis on helping formerly incarcerated women. Stephanie currently works in HR at a tech startup in Irvine, California, and manages the reentry career services on the side. She says, uh, in advance of this, she said she works to support her Pacific Reentry Career Services habit. She completed her Bachelor's of Art in English at California Lutheran University and her Master's Degree in Women's Studies from San Diego State University, helping us all rethink this carceral and re-entry realm. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Stephanie Hammerwold. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Well, I'm so glad because uh, I'm really, I've been really, really, really thinking the carceral approach to all of our criminal justice system. So this is sort of like after the women have already served is where our attention is going to be focused. So let's start with a general picture about the transition process for women who've been incarcerated in the U.S. How much should criminal background checks influence hiring decisions, Stephanie? Well, my big thing with this is that once you've served time, it should be time done. Um, And we have a system set up where people continue to serve a life sentence after they've been released. Um, It makes it very hard to find jobs, housing, um, get licenses, sometimes even getting financial aid to go back to school. I've worked with clients who struggled with that, who really, really want to get a college degree and are limited because they have a drug conviction that says, nope, you can't get that financial aid. So they can't afford it. Um, And education is a pathway. You know, obviously we're here on a college campus. It's not a hard case to make that it's a pathway to a much better job and a much better life. Well, one other thing, and I just heard it on a reveal episode produced by the Center for Investigative Reporting. There's another thing I don't think we think about is that when you're incarceration, you're taken out of the loop of 
everything, every mm-hmm. uh, of the societal kinds of activities. So there's a, you you are losing capacity in navigating, knowing what's going on. There's a sort of a there's just like a, a life gap that's going on. So the reentry is really very confounding for yeah. this pool. Yeah, and especially if you look at technology, I've been reading some stories about people who've served like 15 or 20 years. Exactly. And they get out and they were arrested at a time when there was no smartphones. And so just understanding how to navigate that or online applications when you're talking about jobs, that could be brand new for somebody who's served a long sentence. So Stephanie, tell us what proportion of the work force comprises an incarcerated demographic? So um, in the U.S., there's about 70 million people with some kind of criminal record. That's our big number. That's huge. Yeah. I don't think we realize that. Yeah. And especially in this job market right now, I do a lot of hiring and it's very hard to find qualified candidates because unemployment's so low. Um, So if we say, okay, this part of the population, you know, about a third of the population that can work has some kind of record and we're not going to consider them for jobs, that's a lot of the labor pool that I'm not even looking at uh, that might be perfectly capable and able to work. Okay. So why don't you talk about Pacific Reentry Career Services in terms of serving your clientele, Mm -hmm. educating the public, educating business hiring employees. So you have many people to be bringing up to speed. Yeah. And so the way I kind of came to this work, I'm not formally incarcerated myself, but I realized that there's huge value in those of us that are in gatekeeper roles, like being in human resources, to really work to change the policy. Um, As a service provider to clients, I can do all kinds of work to prepare that person for the job search. Get them in job training. We can put them into an educational program. We can get the resume ready and all that. But if the jobs aren't there, all that training goes to waste and the person loses hope. So as an HR person, I need to think about how I write the policies at my company. I need to think about how I talk to other HR people to say, hey, you should be considering this population. The very first HR director I worked for when I kind of stumbled into my HR career, uh, when she was training us on how to screen applications, she said, if somebody checks off that box that they have a conviction, don't hire them. They can go get their experience elsewhere. We were hiring warehouse workers for minimum wage. We were elsewhere. We were a starting point for somebody who was coming out and had nothing. And to turn our backs on that population, especially in Santa Cruz, where there were a high rate of people who've been incarcerated for for various drug addiction reasons, we were really shutting a a major door and being a large employer in that county at that time. So that's kind of how I stumbled into the work and and making the connection between what I'd already done volunteer-wise with um, starting a career in human resources. Um, And that's why I realized when years later when we founded this organization that it would have one element that works directly with clients, whether that's providing one-on-one mentorships or job search Mm -hmm. workshops to um, just doing outreach to my colleagues and peers within human resources or business owners or anybody who's a hiring gatekeeper. When you were talking about should in the corporate setting, Mm -hmm. what are you finding more persuasive? The good neighbor kind of uh, good Samaritan aspect or uh, is there that it pencils out these this is an amazing workforce a very motivated workforce what what really compels employers Um, I try to share my personal story so that one employer in the intro that you talked about where I went to my boss and said hey can we strike this question from the application and she said okay (laughs) without hesitation why um, do you think she knew okay like that without um, I think, any you know, hesitation? Politically, she was already kind of thinking that way. Right. And there was already stirrings talking about ban the box at that time. This is about 10 years ago. 10, okay. Um, you know, whether it was at the state level or at that point, the EEOC was releasing guidance saying, hey, um, you know, communities of color are disproportionately affected by incarceration. So if we automatically use criminal record as a way to reject people, there's a potential risk that we're rejecting a lot more candidates of color. And so with that kind of information starting to trickle out in the HR world, it really helped her to see, yeah, let's give this a try and see what happens. And what we did it, nothing changed. I mean, that was kind of the big thing is we, we would find out later on, we hired somebody with a record and they were perfectly fine as an employee. So a lot of times I try to connect with people on that personal story. Like I've been there, I've done this. You know, I've I've been around supervisors who've had a hesitation about it. But then you start to talk to people and you realize most of us know somebody that's been affected by incarceration, whether it's a friend, a family member, a neighbor, your neighbor's son, somebody who's had that experience. And you realize like, oh, this person really struggled when they came back 
because they didn't have a support network and a job. Stephanie, I've I've actually since I've been visiting this topic mm-hmm. reentry because there have been a, a number of things that the law school's been putting on stellar kinds of immersion exercises and other things, and it's made me I think a little more tuned. I'm when I'm at a commercial setting and I think I can identify somebody that looks like they're in the reentry transition. They just they just look a little like they're not they've not been there for very long. I've noticed it with men. I've not noticed it with women, so I'm not sure if they have a different way of comporting, but I don't know if there is is there any I guess not as a customer there's nothing I can do about that, but just I guess just to be aware and because they may be, look like they're out of place, just bring them in place, right? Just, mm-hmm. you know, say, well, I'd, I'd like your help now. Or, I mean, I'm sure any gesture like that of acceptance, of uh, connection, might sort of like bring that reentry, move it right along a little bit, would it? Yeah, and one of the biggest things I hear over and over again from recently released people or the ones that have been successful is the reason I was successful is because I had support around me. So even that intangible might yeah. be a a supportive little something to adjust. Yeah, and that's like even if you if you know of a, like a family friend whose son or daughter is returning from prison or jail, reaching out saying, "Hey, you want me to look at your resume?" And yeah. just that kind of encouragement goes a huge, huge way to help somebody feel like a normal human being. Because that's and, the thing is, when you're transitioning back, you don't feel normal. And that's what Pacific Reentry Services mm-hmm. does too. Is help with that resume because it's it may be you're doing that are you working with some of them prior to their actual release i've had people that have written to me um while they're incarcerated and they'll hand they know how to reach you yeah and we'll start working on it from there um i've also been out to ciw the women's prison out in chino a couple times um they do provider fairs every so often so it's a good way to meet people with or they're within a year of getting released um so i can provide them information so if they're ready when they get out they know what resources are there and are also in, are you in touch with the women in Linwood's detention center in LA County? Or I'm that's not. Beyond? I mostly serve Orange County. Okay. Um, I do get people from outside the area reaching out to me because we have like a job search guide and other resources we can mail out to people. Okay. And explain to all of us, you're mainly concerned with the female demographic, correct? Yeah. Well, anybody who reaches out to us who's formerly incarcerated and wants job search help, I'm not going to turn them away. But we do have a strong focus on women because I think women are an underserved population even though they're an increasing population within jail and prison walls um, why so, is that Stephanie well here's the thing prisons were designed with men in mind because when you think of the criminal you know you think of if I say ex-con or bring up any of those words or felon who do you think of you think of the tatted up tough looking scary guy it's a tatted up woman now <laughs> yeah and the reality is a lot of people serving time are in there for drug-related sentences so whether that's possession it could be theft related to getting money to do drugs you know I've worked with a plenty of women who've had prostitution charges because they were prostituting themselves to get drugs. And so they've dealt with addiction and that kind of thing. Um, When it comes to violent crimes in women, so so many of the stories have to do with domestic violence or going after an abusive partner or some kind of crime in that vein. It's it's, it's a, a different kind of set of crimes that women may be committing. But, you know, just in general in this country, since the 90s, we've seen a huge surge in people being locked up for drug-related charges, and women are getting swept up in that. So you were familiar with your volunteer work before. What mm-hmm. other what other kinds of expertise that you did you tap into to know how to put together Pacific reentry services? Well, for a few years after I moved, I had lived up in Santa Cruz for about a decade and then moved back to Southern California because I grew up down here. And um, at that point, I decided to try HR consulting. So I kind of had some experience getting a small business started. And that's when I realized, you know what, my passion really is with this volunteer work. And how can I take that? How can I take my knowledge and expertise on HR and spending all, you know, now 15 plus years reviewing resumes, doing all that kind of stuff and help a population that's underserved. So that's really, I pulled from my HR experience. I pulled from like, what does it take to start a small consulting business that eventually now, you know, I've transitioned back into corporate, a full-time corporate job. And the reason I did that was because all the consulting clients made it hard to manage the nonprofit. So it's like, okay, if I have one HR job, like you said in the beginning, that supports my volunteer habit, <laughs> I can focus more energy and my free time on this. 
but they're so related. Well, for those mm-hmm. of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader, Radio KUCI. My guest is Stephanie Hammerwold. She is Executive Director and Co-Founder of Pacific Reentry Career Services, a nonprofit that helps formerly incarcerated women find and maintain employment following release. She is, as you heard, a also a human resource professional at a tech startup here in Irvine. Well, let's do a little listing of myths that you want to mm-hmm. crush today? Um, I think the biggest one that I always hear is, well, people who have a record are, are not trustworthy. I'm going to have to fire them for theft or violence at some point. Um, to HR people, I always say, think about your worst termination. And every HR person has a horror story of some bad termination or an employee who did something awful they had to fire. Think about how often those people you knew they had a record. And if somebody was already being strict about hiring folks with a record, chances are that person was squeaky clean on paper. My worst terminations have been people that have been squeaky clean on paper, that haven't had any issues, didn't have a background, and then they committed theft or some horrible harassment situation, and we had to fire them. You can't can't evaluate a book by its folder mm-hmm. instead of the cover. Okay, And a lot of more. formerly incarcerated people, too, they're very loyal employees because they know how hard it is to land that job. So they're going to be much more likely to work hard to keep that job. I have one client, one of my longest clients who I've stayed in touch with who's now working. And she says, I would never even take so much as a post-it note from my employer because I don't want anybody to have any reason to say, hey, she's a criminal. And that's the reason she took that post-it note or that pen. So could you argue in the penal cultural setting, Mm -hmm. I, I mean cultural setting with all due respect, that it's a they've they've been following rules meticulously mm-hmm. so they're not going to get time added or parole deferred or something like that so they they're following the rules of mm-hmm. the setting yeah and if somebody's in that position where they're really looking for a job they're committing to turning their life around you know if somebody has a paycheck that means they can pay their rent that means they can buy groceries that means if you know especially for women because a lot of women who are incarcerated are mothers of young children If they have that stability in their lives, their kids and having their kids back becomes a motivating factor. So many times when I was going in the jail in Santa Cruz, I would hear, I just want my kids back. I'm just going to do this and I'm going to get sober and clean because I want my kids back. And that for women is much more of a motivating factor than it is often for men. Now there's programs, it's a whole separate story of, of that are trying to get men more engaged in being good and active fathers from behind bars. But for women, it's a little bit easier to get them to be, think towards getting their kids back and reunifying their family. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So are there a few other myths? This is our chance to go through quite a, quite a few of that to get people rethinking this whole situation. Well, I think also like once a criminal, always a criminal. And um, that people think that that kind of infests someone's mind. I, I put out there, number one, think about how many times all of us have broken the law to some degree, whether it's speeding Sometimes it could be something worse that you didn't get caught for. Sometimes it's minor shoplifting, any of that kind of stuff. It just happens. Some people get caught for it. There's, you know, think about illegal drug use in this country and how many people are doing that and don't necessarily serve time behind bars. And again, that's a whole other topic, probably for a whole other show. But there's all those different ways that that those kinds of things happen. And it doesn't make us any less trustworthy as an employee. The other thing is the more we do to support people getting out to build healthy lives, the more we help to reduce recidivism and people recommitting crimes. Which is a very yeah. fiscally impactful mm-hmm. step. Yeah. And I hear, it was a couple of years ago, there was some stat that to incarcerate someone in California, it costs about the same as a year at Harvard. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've been here. And our tax too. dollars are paying for that. So the more we can do to keep people out of jail and prison, they become taxpaying citizens. They're contributing to the system and to other programs besides locking people up. So we have now, it's almost two years, mm-hmm. not just a little short of that, California's fair chance hiring law. It eliminates the criminal conviction question on job applications. Were you involved in some of that rule, the lawmaking there, the process? Or? No, I was not involved in that, but I've been a big supporter in getting the word out about it. Um, it was a huge, huge victory, I think, for us because people are judged just simply on checking a box on that application without even having the chance to go in and make their case. And the way the law is written now, you can still check a background, but it's when a conditional offer has been made. 
So you've gotten through the process. You've gotten to know someone. You want to, you know, you can check their references, all that. You really want to hire them. Then you can check that background. And you, you can have then. to give the person a chance to explain, too, because there are mistakes that happen in background checks. So it could be somebody doesn't have a background at all. And you want to make sure that, hey, this conviction came up. Can you tell me about it? Um, it may be something completely unrelated. Now, I do say, like, if somebody has issues with embezzlement and that's what they serve time for. and you're Yeah, I would have person, issues with embezzlement. Yeah, you yeah. wouldn't want to hire them to do your payroll, right? Right. <laughs> and so there's there's perfectly reasonable times where you say, oh, this person committed uh, crimes against children. I'm not going to hire them to work in my school. Well, they're going to be on the registry. And the, mm-hmm. the, the sexual offender registry is completely different from a criminal record with yeah. the box checking. It's a, That's a different. That's a ledger, not a box. Yeah. So that's, a that's much record, clearer yeah. up front. But yeah, I mean, with, but with any conviction, I say, like, look at the conviction. Look at the job. And figure out, like, if somebody has a DUI and they're applying to be a file clerk, that's probably not going to be an issue. You know, like I said, if somebody's embezzling money from a previous company or intellectual property theft, there might be cause for concern. And then you can decide, you know what, this person wouldn't be a good fit for this job. They could probably have another job that doesn't deal directly with what they committed a crime for. So is this a new standard, the California Fair Chance hiring law? And, and is, this, is this a template for other states, or did this come from other states? Where, where does it fit in the scheme of national criminal so penal codes? Yeah, so there's about 35 different states and the District of Columbia that have variations of ban-the-box and fair chance hiring. Um, and some of those are, they vary from state to state. California is the one I really know. Um, but some of them are as extensive as California, and some of them just remove some of the barriers to hiring. I think California's is one that goes, you know, some of the takes some of the farthest steps in terms it of does. completely removing that question from the application. But you know, there's other cities and places around the country too that have passed their own ordinances. Um, so, like the city of LA was ahead of the state of California in terms of having an ordinance a few years ago. And is it as comprehensive, though? Does it do as much as what the, the California law does, or is it it's just ahead of in time? Frame? It was just ahead of it in time. Yeah, I think the L.A. one's pretty close to what the state law ended up being. So you're telling us how this is handled. Uh, it's get, there's, a, there's sort of a due process built into this. What the, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, that's the state agency, mm-hmm. and then there's a federal agency that's involved in this processing? Well, there is no, um, in terms of federal law right now. It's just incentives. There's federal yeah, program incentives. Yeah, there are incentives. incentives, like the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, um, which is a tax credit employers can take for hiring um, somebody with barriers. Um, so it can be somebody with a record. It can be a veteran, somebody who's disabled, somebody who's been on public benefits. And depending on what category they're in determines what the tax break is. Um, But it's a really good incentive for employers to hire people that normally get passed over in the job pool. What kind, I mean, kind of break it down. What's an incentive look like? You know, I'm not sure on the exact numbers of them because they do vary depending on which category people fall into. I think veterans give you the biggest tax break. But it is, we have a whole information page on our website about that. And um, here in California, the EDD offices um, are the experts on that. So economic employment employment development de- de- department. Okay. So they do they process all the claims for like unemployment. They um, help place people in jobs when they're unemployed. Um, you know, run other kinds of state programs to support employees. So we were talking about those incentives. Are there? I mean, you've you've mentioned a few kind of certain scenarios. Are there any kinds of like a, like a case study you could walk us through and how this thing really all works? You know, my biggest case study is just my own experience working with this population. You know, and again, I'm somebody who comes in and people don't expect me to be the one that's hanging out with people with backgrounds. Um, But they're some of the most amazing people I've met because I see that they've been, you know, through the worst and are pulling themselves up in a system that's still trying to keep them down. And I also see the value in just being there, just sometimes sending somebody a text and saying, hey, how's your job search going? Or how are you doing today? Is there anything I can do to support you? And seeing that that's the thing that can push somebody to keep going. And that's you. And there are are there other volunteers Mm -hmm. that are doing that? Yeah. So several other volunteers. We're a pretty small organization. And it's me trying to engage people from the professional community, whether they're HR professionals. Like I have an attorney right now that's mentoring someone, you know, a vice president of a major corporation who wanted to get involved. So people like that 
because to me, once they get more and more engaged in the process of meeting people who have records, then they go, oh, wow, I really need to be the one who's changing something in my company or I need to be talking to my friends. I think one of the biggest action items I give people is just yes. talk to people about this issue. Like right now. Yes. Right Why right is here. it important? Right now. <laughs> Because it gets people engaged in it, and then they start thinking, you know, as soon as there's, there's pending legislation coming up, they'll call their reps. We had a lot of things passed in California this year, a lot of things that Newsom signed into law that affect the uh, formerly incarcerated. Well, go ahead. Well, some of them are for things that are people that are cur- currently incarcerated, um, like not having to pay for medical treatment if they need it. Um, the biggest ones that I'm most interested in and I'm working on studying up on um, are helping to sunset certain convictions after so many years of good behavior. And that's one, um, there's one client I work with who is really, really has been following this. She went, you know, she was making calls to reps, all that kind of stuff. And I even had one client go up to Sacramento earlier this year to advocate for this law because these are people that have had several years out. Nothing's happened. No probation, no parole, no violations, no interactions with the police. And they're still being plagued by that record. So it would be an automatic expunging yeah, for of certain that, charges. so it'll just, it just turns out it's just yeah. somehow, it, somebody has to actively delete that record? Yeah, so typically with those programs, there are paperwork you have to go and file and okay. to start the process. Um, so there are different variations of that already in place, but this would open up a lot more options for people. And it would be after so many years, it could help to sunset those convictions so they drop off your record. Would that be a, a service that you would be incorporating into your volunteer work um probably referring or, like here or, in orange county like the public defender's office okay like the new leaf program which is one option or maybe the law school yeah here at uci with the mm-hmm. public interest law that could be a niche for them to mm-hmm. open up yeah because that's what's keeping people back is that they they may have like be seven or eight years out and that record still comes up even though they've had seven or eight years of really solid work experience and living their lives so my listeners are poised. They know what's next. What can listeners do? What do you need most right now? Mm-hmm. And what do you want to, for listeners to envision their role is with Pacific Services? Number one, like I said, just be an advocate for this issue and educate yourself. Uh, I, I love books, so I always give book recommendations. Um, one that I really like right now, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which is being made into a movie. Talks about his work working with the wrongfully condemned. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, another really good book that talks about race in the um, you know, prison system in the U.S. Even Orange is the New Black, the memoir, that goes into a lot of issues about women in prison. And there's a podcast that kind of partners with that, um, yes. that Piper Kerman did from Where She Stands, that talks about specifically about women's issues um, in prison and jail and reentry. And you were recently presenting a film, The If Project, mm-hmm. that was uh, presented, I believe, at a church. And that actually there's a podcast with the director, producer, writer on the film school, my colleague here at the radio station, Mike Caspar. So folks can listen to that interview from mm-hmm. the September 14th, 2016 podcast that he has in the archive. And for if the the titles were rapid fire listeners. I assure you that you'd be able to find them all on one of the tabs at the website prcsca.org mm-hmm. for your organization there. Well, Stephanie, it's been really good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Thank you. My guest was Stephanie Hammerwold, executive director and co-founder of Pacific Reentry Career Services, a nonprofit that helps formerly incarcerated women find and maintain employment. We'll be right back after a short station break with my next guest, Monica Ramirez Almadani, visiting law professor. We're going to talk about DACA, some interesting developments this last week. Be right back. Stay tuned. Pianist Bill Beach, Dreams Deferred. Thank you for staying tuned. Last Tuesday, U.S. Supreme Court heard the oral arguments on the rescission of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. My next guest, Monica Ramirez Amadani, will offer her considered legal appraisal on the juncture we're at with respect to DACA. 
Professor Ramirez Almadani is visiting clinical professor of law at UCI with a tenure career as a civil rights advocate, litigator, and policy advisor. She began her career as an Equal Justice Works Fellow and staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union Immigrants' Rights Project, where she litigated cases protecting the constitutional rights of immigrants and challenging immigration detention conditions, immigration enforcement actions, and state and local anti-immigrant laws. She served in the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division as counsel to Assistant Attorney General Tom E. Perez, who was actually on the show a while ago in this capacity as the DNC chair. Just want to let you remind, we're going to connect our guest dots here. And she, as I said, she was primary advisor on immigrant rights issues, leading legal and policy initiatives and advising on litigation. She played a critical role in the government's litigation challenging Arizona's SB 1070, a state law intended to criminalize immigrants in Arizona. Professor Ramirez Almadani previously served as Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Counsel to U.S. Deputy Attorney General James Cole in the Obama administration, prosecuting federal crimes as an assistant United States attorney in the public corruption and civil rights section of the U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A. More recently, Professor Ramirez Amadani served as a special assistant attorney general in the California Department of Justice, where she advised then Attorney General, now U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, on immigrant rights and civil rights issues. Prior to joining UCI Irvine School of Law, Professor Ramirez Amadani practiced as a white-collar criminal defense and government investigations lawyer at Covington and Burling. She maintained a vigorous pro bono practice at the firm, including as a part of the senior Covington team representing the UC regents of the University of California versus UC Department of Homeland Security, helping to secure an injunction against the Trump administration's decision to rescind the Deferred Action to Childhood Arrivals program, DACA, as we were going to we'll continue to call it here. Professor Ramirez Amadani completed her undergraduate degree from Harvard University and her law degree from Stanford Law School. She was a law clerk to the Honorable Warren J. Ferguson of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. She comes to us today from her Irvine office. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Ramirez Amadani. Thank you so much, Claudia. It's great to be with you. Well, you're the woman of the hour because it's, this is a, I, I just have this kind of vision of there's like about 700,000 young, promising individuals that are playing legal pickle right now. And so we're, it's, you're the one to, to take all my crass uh, metaphors and put them into distinguished uh, interpretations here. So, well, so DACA was instituted June 15th, 2012, by executive order. And that's a key feature there. By President Obama, it was a huge game changer for many young adults around the country. That case is now before the U.S. Supreme Court. But, Professor, I'm not sure why it's hard for me to find the the case name for that. I was like, it's all it's the DACA case, but what's the name of the case? Sure. Well, it's actually several cases, but the main case is... Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California. So the, there are three cases, three consolidated cases before the Supreme Court in which um, various plaintiffs, including the University of California, challenged the Trump administration's decision approximately two years ago to end the DACA program. And all those cases are now before the Supreme Court. So that's a lot of complicated moving parts. And <laughs> yes. and so and we have to say that because 700,000 people aren't sure where they are. I mean, if if I am going to be clumsy with my metaphors, if this were a baseball diamond, where are the, where are the DACA applicants? Well, um, as you say, this is a case with significant stakes. There are 700,000 approximately 700,000 DACA recipients who will be affected by this decision and who fortunately have been able to maintain their DACA status uh, for the past two years because several district courts bravely enjoined the government's decision to rescind the program back in 2017. And so um, they've been living in this very precarious situation 
for the past two years waiting to see what the courts would ultimately do. And as I said, um, several district courts issued preliminary injunctions, which essentially stopped the government from ending the program. But now the issue is before the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, I think it's very unclear from last week's oral argument where exactly the court is going to land on on this decision. So when was the last DACA applicant eligible to file for the first time their paperwork? Because that's kind of a, a, a piece here. Yes. So when the decision was made to rescind the program, at that time, the administration allowed for people whose DACA was about to expire It allowed those people to go ahead and renew their DACA status, but it did not permit any new applications. When we obtained the preliminary injunction to stop the government's rescission of the program, the district courts across the country who ruled on the case decided that those who already had DACA could keep their DACA and they could continue to renew their DACA, but no new applicants could apply. So since 2017, those individuals who already had DACA were able to keep it, but those who were younger and were about to apply, for example, were never allowed to apply. And anyone who lost their DACA essentially before the decision to rescind the program was not able to renew their DACA. And there are, I'll just say, this is a sort of a, a, the social aspect, but I'm trying to stay on the legal because there's so much to cover here, that, that there are families, I don't know the number, I, I think actually it's millions of families that have mixed status members of their families. Some that are, that are DACA, that have applied, some that were DACA eligible, didn't apply, some that are na- native-born U.S. citizens and the parents that are undocumented. So it's, it's, they're all over the map in terms of their documentation. And it's this, this uh, whole legal proceedings complicates their entire domestic life. (laughs) Absolutely, Claudia. And that's one of the things that's um, interesting about this case. The government does not dispute that DACA has created enormous benefits for participants and their families. Okay. Um, DACA has allowed um, people to obtain employment authorization and Social Security numbers with the ability to work. DACA recipients have been able to achieve a 91% employment rate, um, and they've been able to increase their wages by 69%. And by having access to work, that obviously helps their families, including an estimated 200,000 U.S. citizen children of DACA recipients. They've also been able to obtain employment-sponsored health care by being able to work, right, and that helps their families. And the plaintiffs in these cases have been able to show that DACA recipients have contributed $1.25 billion in state and local tax revenue each year. So they're obviously helping our economies as well. They're um, active members of the community. And being able to pursue their educational opportunities is also key. DACA has allowed 94% of participants to pursue their education. 72% are pursuing a BA or higher degree. And so the program is enormously significant. And like you said, it affects not only the recipients themselves who are able to live their lives a little bit more freely, knowing that they're not a priority for deportation and that they have authorization to work, but it's also benefited their families, their parents, their children, um, their siblings, and their communities overall. So the oral arguments last week, um, I, did you follow them in real time or were you able to review it after it had uh, taken place? I'm not Only sure. Only afterwards. Afterwards. Unfortunately, yes. So the White House's rationale in, in, or their, the preparation put them on, some argued on some not fine footing, but they're could you help us understand the the strength or weaknesses of their efforts to to rescind this program, given that it was an executive order in the Obama administration that pushed this program out? Sure. So let me take a step back Please and do. explain what the legal issues are in the case. There are primarily two issues. So one is whether 
the Supreme Court can even review the government's decision to end the program. Okay, and that's a question of judicial review under the Administrative Procedure Act. And the government insists that DHS's decision to rescind DACA was committed to agency discretion by law and therefore is unreviewable by the court. And the analogy they repeatedly draw is that their decision, the Obama administration's decision to start the program and the Trump administration's decision to end the program is akin to a prosecutor deciding whether to charge someone with a crime. When a prosecutor decides not to enforce the law or decides to enforce the law, that decision, that discretionary decision, is unreviewable by a court. And so their argument is that here they're doing the same thing. They're exercising their discretion as the executive branch. They have authority to determine what priorities the Department of Homeland Security will have with respect to immigration enforcement. They get to decide who's a priority for deportation and who's not a priority. And because they have this discretion, their argument is that the Supreme Court can't even review, or no court can even review, that discretionary decision. So that's number one, whether the court itself has the power to even review the decision. The second issue, which is more substantive, is whether the decision itself was lawful. So if the Supreme Court finds that the decision to rescind DACA is reviewable, then it has to address the legality of the agency's action. And the question there is how they decided to make the decision, because both sides agree that the federal government has the power to end the program. The question is just whether the way they ended it was lawful, whether they considered the right factors, whether they weighed the right factors correctly, and therefore whether they made a decision that was reasoned and not arbitrary and capricious in violation of what's called the Administrative Procedures Act. So those are the two issues at stake. And it's not so much that, um, like I said, both sides agree that the executive the Department of Homeland Security here has the power to end the program. The question is how they do it and whether they provided sufficient justification in doing so. And so that's what the Supreme Court is going to address. So everyone's reading the tea leaves. They're listening, I think, mainly to how Supreme Court Justice Roberts was responding with his questions. What is your impression of his inquiry, and where do you think he possibly is going to untangle this knot? Because so much is on the line with not only DACA applicants and families, but there's a Supreme Court sort of an impression of a partisan dynamic in play on the Supreme Court. So what did you take away from his questions at the oral arguments last Tuesday? Sure, I think that it's unclear where he stands. I think that he does remain the swing vote. Um, But based on his questions, what I gathered is that he is very concerned about the reliance interest in the case. And by that, I mean the fact that these young people relied on this program for their lives, right? They applied for the status they submitted fingerprints, they paid significant fees, they exposed themselves and their families by applying for this program, and they've been living here with the uh, confidence that they are not going to be deported. And so there were several, several of his questions suggested that he was concerned about that reliance interest. He was concerned that the administration may not have sufficiently considered what these interests, and that the administration um, is required to consider these interests in in rescinding the program. At the same time, I don't, I I had hoped to hear more questions focused on the legal justification that the government had given and whether that was sufficient. And Roberts didn't really ask um, very specific questions about 
the memos, for example, that DHS and DOJ issued to rescind the program. And ultimately, those decisions are what the court is considering, whether those memos are sufficient, a sufficient basis for ending the program. So I think he is sympathetic towards DACA recipients, but in terms of his questioning, it just wasn't clear to me if he was willing to go far enough to say that the government's justification in this context was insufficient. But again, there, he did show signs of sympathy, and we've seen in prior cases, like the census case, um, that he is one to defer to the federal government on certain questions, um, that he respects the executive branch's authority. However, um, he knows that when the government has gone too far, um, it should be stopped. And so I think there's a possibility here that he will um, look at this closely and decide that there were significant reliance interests here that the government did not consider when it rescinded the program and that it should go back and weigh those interests and issue a much more substantive decision if it decides that it does want to end the program. So remanding, isn't that the word we use, remanding this? That's, yes, that's, that's, that's a possibility, yes. For those that's of, really what the plaintiffs um, are seeking in this case. They're saying, please send this back, um, remand this back to the district court, and essentially, I mean, the government at that point can decide whether it wants to issue another decision explaining its reasons for rescinding the program or whether it basically decides to to maintain the status quo and allow the program to remain. For those of you who've just joined Ask a Leader, my guest is Monica Ramirez Almadani, visiting clinical professor of law at UCI and civil rights advocate, litigator, and police advisor. The topic being the status of deferred action for childhood arrivals, the U.S. Supreme Court's expediting the case of whether to allow the Trump administration to rescind the DACA program. So I want to know what you think. Um, what, from with the best of your understanding, I, this is really very, uh, very abstract, but what is the Supreme Court members, do you think their peripheral vision is on matters like uh, the increased scrutiny of the administration chief immigration policy guy, Stephen Miller, uh, they know that this ruling is going to come out right before the political party conventions in the summer. There's going to be so much going on. How much are they thinking about all those moving parts in terms of how they're going to handle this? I don't know for sure, but they're they're human, <laughs> and I'm sure they read the news, and um, I, I think they they know the they understand the broader context here. And there is no question that this administration has been um, incredibly aggressive in going after immigrants in this country. Um, let's not forget what's happened on the border with family separation. They have uh, continued to issue new regulations to try to restrict the rights of uh, individuals in this country to seek immigration relief. There are uh, countless examples of this administration uh, attacking immigrants. And so I think that that context, knowing that that's the administration's policy agenda, um, is something that the court will necessarily consider. Um, And I think that's something that the plaintiffs in this case also try to highlight in their briefing and in their oral argument that the government's decision to rescind here was was very pretextual and that it was insufficient. That if you're going to take away the right of 700,000 people to live in this country in peace, um, individuals who came here as children who have lived here their entire lives, then you can't just issue a one-paragraph memo saying, that's it, you know, we're done with this program. Much more is required. And ultimately, you know, I think we all want Congress to act and to pass legislation that protects this population, um, as well as other immigrants who have lived here for a long time and deserve to be in this country. And so I think, you know, what's happening in the world and the administration's, again, their their views and, and their priorities is uh, beyond DACA. Um, are something that the court will consider. 
So then do you think that the lack of questions of Justice Roberts about the procedural aspects is do you think that maybe I mean I I know I'm asking you to really <laughs> get in his head but does it seem reasonable to think that the reason he didn't bring that up is cuz he really has heavily weighted that remanding solution to this knot that's tied I think it's really hard to know. I also think that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh expressed uh, concerns as well about the reliance interest. And so I think, you know, we've sort of, we've we've assumed that Roberts is a swing vote, but right. we may be surprised by where other justices come down. Um, I think it's just very unclear. And UCI Law School's Veridiana Chabolas participating in the case. Did you work with her? Did, did, do you want to talk about her role briefly? I did not work with her, but I, I do know her through our Immigrants' Rights Clinic here at UC Irvine Law School. Uh, she is involved, I believe, in um, one of the cases that was consolidated with the, um, with the University of California case. And so she's one of several individuals um, who are or were DACA recipients who filed their own lawsuit with the support of, um, of a law firm and uh, public counsel, a nonprofit organization in Los Angeles. And so I think it's amazing that she's been involved. I think it makes such a difference to have those who are actually affected by these programs um, be plaintiffs in these lawsuits. When I worked on the UC case, I was part, as you mentioned, part of that team when I was yes. at Covington and Burling. I worked with a lot of UC students on declarations that were submitted to the court, to the district court in San Francisco when we were moving for our preliminary injunction. And those declarations explained all the hardship that these students would face if their DACA was removed from them. And so I think those voices are so critical. Yes. And I'm, I'm really proud to, to know many of those students. Well, I wish we had more time. I want to thank you, Professor Monica Ramirez Almadani, for taking this up with us today about where DACA is at this point. Thank, thank you, you so Claudia. very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And change my life the way you've done. Feels like home. So just to quickly announce for you all that um, if you're listening today, the think tanks continue at UCI's Beale Center. The exhibit America Monument presents today, this Tuesday, from 4 to 5.30, Hearing Sandra Bland, Part 1, What Sound Tells Us About How to Get Away with Murder. Professor Sora Han will be the one speaking. The second one will be on Friday, 4 to 5.30, also at the Beale Center. That's my wrap. Next week, I'll have on for the full hour, Native American writer-editor Jacqueline Keeler, creator of Hashtag Not Your Mascot with a fond history for our consideration Thanksgiving weekend and beyond. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Yeah.